Today we're looking at Psalm 88. I've picked this. It's a very helpful psalm because it is for people who suffer with no end in sight. It is for people who can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. The Bible, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it, that no believer is exempt from the trials of life? You're not exempt from trials of life. Jesus wasn't exempt from trials of life. As long as we live in this fallen world, we need to understand that suffering is a required course in the school of faith. You're in the school of faith, and it's required that you suffer. It's a good thing. In fact, we are called to rejoice and to consider that a good thing. So rather than being spared from pain, Christians are actually supported by God through their adversities. God isn't going to spare you from adversity. He's going to, by His grace, enable you through that. So nobody should be surprised as we read verses like this in Psalm 88 that the psalmist here is going through what some have called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of a soul is is a time when you are in, in great persecution, trial, affliction, adversity, and you just, you just feel like you're in this deep hole, you can't see any light, and, and there's no hope of getting out of it. It's interesting. This is something a lot of people have gone through in their lives. But as you compare this psalm with other psalms, the... A lot of other psalms are the laments, you know, where they're lamenting, they're crying out to God, often end with great hope uh, or encourage us to trust in God. But this psalm moves through tribulation, and it just doesn't seem to end with hope. Here the psalmist is actually remaining in his despair. He's unable to shake his his discouragement Deliverance hasn't come anywhere in this psalm. There was no spiritual encouragement. Darkness is just is enveloping him, enshrouding him. It's, it's without him, all around him, it's within him, and he can't shake it. This psalm has been called the saddest psalm in the entire Psalter because of that reason. There's it just doesn't mention the word hope. It doesn't give much hope. It's a lament of somebody who is, in, who is crying out to God, desperately crying out to God. Oh, he wants to know God. He wants to see God. It's a painful prayer of somebody who has been ill. Uh, apparently, this individual has been injured since his youth. As we read, you'll, you'll see that mentioned in the psalm. And uh, if you've ever experienced an injury or some sort of pain in your life, you know it's, it's an incredibly th- difficult thing to deal with, especially if, if it's something you were born with. Apparently, I was born with spina bifida and didn't know that until I had an MRI in my 30s. And uh, since then, I've had several surgeries, which don't seem to be fixing the problem. And it's frustrating when you're in the midst of that and, and you're suffering with, with a debilitating thing like that, and just doesn't seem to be any hope. But throughout his lifetime, he's, he's suffering. 
He's known one, just one disappointment after another. And because the Psalms speak to all troublesome times of life, this particular psalm here is included for people who suffer with no end in sight. For, for If you're one of those people who can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, it doesn't seem like there's hope, this psalm is for you. Now if you look at the superscription at the beginning of the psalm, it's helpful for many reasons, but notice it's a double title. Psalm 88 just says a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to Mahaloth, Leonoth, a mascal of Ammon, the Ezraite. That word Mahaloth could be the name of a tune or an instrument. We're not quite sure. The word Leonoth means to humble or afflict. So the idea is this: the first title is referring to some, like it's like a dance of affliction, if you will. It's describing the despair of this psalm. That second title in your superscription there mentions a mascal, which is just a contemplation by a musician. A mu- sorry, a musician. So in this case, the musician here, notice, is Haman, who is the, the founder of the choir known as the Sons of Korah. Haman was, as it says, an Ezraite. Uh, that just means that he was, he was part of a clan within the greater tribe of Judah. So that's the introduction. It gives you an idea of, well, who, who is the one who is in this dark night of his soul? So this, this individual, Haman, is really struggling. He is really struggling. He cannot see any hope. He cannot see any light at the end of the tunnel. And he is a leader in Israel. He's a spiritual leader in Israel. So let me just point out to you that just because you you are a spiritual leader doesn't mean you are exempt from the dark night of the soul. So let's take a look at the crisis that Haman faced here. Look at verse 1. Psalm 88 verse 1 says, O Yahweh, or Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom... You remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Yahweh. I spread out my hands to you. We'll just stop there for a moment because this this is showing us the crisis that he faces here. Let me just quickly point out some of the things that he's pointing out to us. Number one, it's interesting, this psalm here, even though that is it's considered the saddest of all psalms in the entire Psalter, he does start off by crying to God. He cries out to Yahweh. 
So when you see all capital letters, Lord, in your Bible, that's God's name of Yahweh. And so he understands that the only deliverance out of his present troubles has to come from God. Such was the desperate outlook of his situation. It's a horrible description there. This is the only ray of hope in the entire psalm, by the way, as we, as we keep reading here. It's the only hope. He has to cry out to God. And notice how often he's crying out to God. Notice it, it mentions day and night. In other words, he's praying to God without ceasing. It's a continual thing. It's not just a, a one-off thing. He feels as if he's not being heard, though. He keeps crying. He keeps crying. He keeps praying. He had been praying, but there's apparently no answer, so he keeps praying. And his unanswered petition left this impression with him that God wasn't listening, that somehow God's ears uh, weren't hearing his prayers, that like God is somehow deaf to his cries. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like God had abandoned you or he wasn't listening to you or his ears are turned off or there's something with, wrong with your prayers, like you're, you're, not, you're not just saying it right or maybe it's because your, your sin is keeping God from listening to you or you're just, there's just something not right there. Maybe you can relate to the Apostle Paul because in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions that he's prayed several times for God to remove his thorn in the flesh. Whatever that thorn in the flesh was, many people think maybe it was some sort of a physical thing. Some people think it was a a spiritual attack from Satan in his life. It doesn't really matter what that is. But Paul prays several times for God to remove it. You know, God doesn't always answer our prayers with a yes. Sometimes God answers your prayer with a no. And that's exactly what God does for Paul. God says, I'm going to answer your, your, your prayer, Paul, and I'm going to say no. You get to keep the thorn in the flesh. Why? Sometimes God answers no so that we would be humbled, so that God's grace in our life would be magnified through the affliction. And apparently that's what's going on here in this situation. So the psalmist says he was crushed by God. Did you notice who's doing the work in his life? God's claiming responsibility, and the psalmist is claiming that God is responsible for crushing him. Now, how do we see that? Well, several ways. Notice number one, in verse 3, he says, My life is near death. This trouble can't be identified but apparently it's something that's life-threatening. Whatever, whatever is afflicting him apparently was life-threatening. So he, he says, my life is near death. And number two, he says, my life is weak. He, he's struggling physically. And, and this verse reinforces here the seriousness of his condition, of his peril. Because notice, notice number two. Keep, keep going. Keep going. So he's cried out to God. He was, he's crushed by God. Keep going. Oh, sorry, I, I, did I not mention these? But anyway, I'm sorry. But uh, how was he crushed by God? Well, 
He sees his life is near death. His life is weak. He didn't have the strength to go on any further here. And then number three, he says, my life is forgotten. Verse five, my life is forgotten? (laughs) Wow. Like those whom you remember no more. That hurts. And as if he had already had one foot in the grave, he was resigned to this hopeless fact. And he's got this idea, I'm set apart from the dead. And from his perspective, death will cut him off from God's care, and he's not going to be remembered by God anymore. And so you can see here the, the utter hopelessness in the psalmist's words. He believes that he is forsaken by God. And number four, he says, my life is darkened in verse six. He, he, he's viewing himself as in this pit. He's in this region of darkness and, and deep, as he says there. And so, it's interesting, though, as you read verse six, again, he's recognizing God's the one who put him there. You have put me in the pit. And so the emphasis here is upon God. It's illustrating a point here, as you read verse 6, that the psalmist made a a graphic reference to death in the grave as this lowest pit, this darkest of depths. The good news is for those of us who actually believe the Bible, we know that's not the deepest, that's not the darkest. See, it would be if you believe this is your best life now, but true Christians don't believe this is our best life now. So there is a greater future yet to come. But he goes on, number five there, he says, in verse seven, he says, my life is afflicted, and he's assuming this this trouble to be God's discipline in his life. And so he's saying, hey, your wrath lies heavy upon me. His terrible circumstances have overwhelmed him. Notice he's describing his circumstances overwhelming him like, like a wave just pounding on him. You ever been out in the surf where the wave's just pounding you? It can be quite scary if you're, if you're caught in a wave and it's just pounding you. It particularly keeps pounding you down into, the, into the, uh, the bottom, into the sand or the, the rocks, and you feel like you can't get out. And so his terrible circumstances have overwhelmed him. And he kind of feels like he's drowning here, at least in despair. But if you look at... Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, keep your finger here. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Because Hebrews chapter 12 tells us what happens with believers who are not walking with God. What does God do with believers who aren't walking with Him? You're not living in right fellowship with Him. God doesn't leave you where you're at. Hebrews 12, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here's the exhortation. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. 
What does God do with his children? If they're disobedient, God is a loving father who chastises them. He disciplines them. He doesn't just let them carry on in their disobedience. You can expect this if you're a believer. We should expect this as believers. If you walk away from God, he's going to bring you back. He's going to bring you back. And notice the results in verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God has a good purpose in why he does this. And by the way, so if you feel like the psalmist here, you're being disciplined by God, you can praise him for it. Because number one, that means you're one of his children. And number two, it means he loves you. And that's the proper view of the discipline. So you haven't been abandoned by God. It actually shows that you're in his family and he's working in your life. But the psalmist goes on in verses 8 and 9 here, showing that he was constrained by God. He was constrained by God. Notice that's number 3. I'm trying to put the notes on the screen here for you. Would you change the screen, please? Change the screen, please. Show show number three there. There we go. Uh, No, go back. Go back. Keep going. There we go. So we're we're talking. Try not to confuse you, but here. But I feel I feel like I'm, I've failed, right? So, so we're still thinking about this crisis that the psalmist is facing. And part of the crisis is that he was constrained by God in verses eight and nine. Because notice what God says, that, or He says about that: "You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in, so I cannot escape." My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. He's constrained. That's how he feels. So notice in verse 8 he says, My friends have been removed. And so with this increasing discouragement, the psalmist is lamenting. uh, This is what he feels is happening to him. Maybe it's true. I don't know. I assume it is. But the idea is he's, he's blaming God for taking away his friends. And that could very well happen if you live a godly life. As God conforms you into the image of Christ, it, it, it probably can happen, and it often does. And so he's, he seems to be suffering alone, so that just makes the suffering even worse. He's without support from friends, and in fact, it says he was a horror to his friends. He's repulsed, and they're hiding from him. It's a horrible situation to be in. But then it just goes on. Number two, he says, my goings are restricted. At the end of verse 8 there, he's confined by his surrounding troubles. So that's the point of his feeling, this constraint. He couldn't escape to find relief from this pressure, the constraints, which leads you into verse 9 where he says, my eyes are wasted. 
Why are his eyes wasted? Because he's just continually crying out to God day and night. He wants relief. His eyes are swollen from all this crying. And then number four, his prayers are wasted. But the good news is, at least he's crying out to the right person. <laughs> he's crying out to Yahweh. Even though there seems to be no answer, he, at least he's, he's looking in the right direction here. But let's look at the next few verses, because he look at the case that he's presented here. He's crying out to God. Here's the case. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Did the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Did you notice they're all questions? All questions there. So he's he's appealing to God using these, these questions. Good questions, nothing wrong with them. And so the first question that he is he's presenting his case is he, he asks God this, will you deliver the dead? In other words, how can you show your saving act toward me if you wait until I'm dead? Why don't you do it now is the implication. Please, I would like it now. Don't just wait till I'm dead. So in the back of his mind, I feel like he knows there's hope, at least in the future, after he's dead. The second question he says here is, will the dead praise you? Will the dead praise you? He knew he could not praise God on earth from the grave, so he pleaded with God to preserve his life. And the third, the third question he asked here is, will you be known, made known in death? He feels like he's going to die. There's no hope. He couldn't declare God's faithfulness to people on the earth if he's dead. So he's, he's pleading with God, let me do it now. Let me do it now. So the case is basically this. Think of it this way. As he's praying to God, crying out to God, you know, God, if I die, then I'm not going to be able to make you known to the world now. That's a legitimate request. But number three, he's facing some confusion here. Look at the confusion that he's feeling. This is what he's feeling, starting at verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Notice how the psalm ends. It doesn't end with hope. So what do we see here in his confusion? Number one, he's basically saying, I have cried to God. And that's exactly what he's doing. But notice there's no relief in sight here. The psalmist prays to God with no relief in sight, no answer, 
has come at this point. There's no response from God. And as a result, he is confused. You ever been in that state? You ever find yourself continually praying to God? You want an answer? You want to hear from God? But it just feels like like the prayer is not even getting to him. No answer. The more he prayed, the more he seemed to be refused by God. The silence from heaven seemed to be deafening, and he's discouraged. That's a hard place to be. And number two, he he feels afflicted by God. Look at the various ways he feels afflicted by God here. In verse 15, he suffered deeply, deeply afflicted and close to death. Notice it's from my youth up. This has been going on a very, very, very long time, year after year after year. This rejection had been a, apparently a lifelong experience. At least that's how he's feeling, as he's writing here at this moment. His present suffering was a long-standing pattern of trouble in his life. And that, that could be very difficult. So where did the suffering come from? Well, notice the psalm says it's from God. That alone should comfort, be a comforting thing, knowing it's not just a random thing happening. It is coming from God. But not only did he suffer deeply, number two, he was destroyed painfully. As verse 16 talks, this, this is like a, a wave crashing upon his helpless soul. And so he testifies here, your wrath, O God, has swept over me. He feels like he's drowning in his despair. And so he says, your dreadful assaults destroy me. He feels destroyed. He feels like he's, he's at the end of his rope and he's about to fall off the end of the rope. And then number three, he's engulfed completely in verse 17. Completely engulfed. And so the psalm claimed that, again, notice it's God has turned his friends against him. And so verse 18 It says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And if if, if that was true, of course God's the one doing this. And and according to verse 8, this isolation was because he was repulsive in their sight. So he could only conclude, my companions have become darkness. My companions have become darkness? Wow. This darkness, by the way, alluded to his despair it's alluding to his depression this this seeming to be a near-death experience and so this is why he's feeling hopeless this is why he's feeling hopeless he's engulfed in this dark night of his soul and he feels like there's no light to come and that's why this has been described as the saddest of all the psalms other than the fact he's praying to god at the beginning and he's crying out in verse 13 again there, that's the only glimmer of hope whatsoever here. So here's the theme that I want you to consider, and then then I'm going to give you some other thoughts. But here's the theme, that sometimes God fills a Christian's life with trouble. Sometimes God fills our lives with trouble. 
And here's where good theology, by the way, is going to be really helpful. Because if you don't think God is good as well as great, you're, you're likely to have a really, really bad attitude. At least you're going to be tempted to have a bad attitude if you don't believe God is good. And if you don't believe God is good always, all the time, you could even walk away. Some have. But let me ask you this. I put a question on the screen here for you. Is darkness the final word? Well, if you look at your English Bible, darkness is the final word. Literally. Literally, darkness is the last word in your Bible here of of this chapter. But it doesn't have to be the last word for us. It doesn't. See, if we do not repent of sin and come to God through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, then guess what? The darkness of hell is all that you and I can anticipate. It's the only thing we have to look forward to. But on the other hand, if we believe the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, and we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, not only is the future changed from darkness to light, but you know what? The past is changed, and the future is changed, the present is changed. It all changes. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we need no longer rise up to, for that to haunt us, is what I'm trying to say. The present can change as well, my friends. So not only is your past changing, your future changing, but your present can change as well. See, with darkness as its final word, what is the role of this psalm in Scripture? Literally, the last word in the psalm is darkness. Yes, I'm not denying that, but that doesn't have to be the case for you and for me. In the beginning of an, an, an answer, I, I, was, I was contemplating, well, what is the answer? Well, I found it helpful as I was reading some commentary. Commentary, sorry, I came across the uh, the Tyndale commentator commentary. Sorry, it had some helpful comment, comments that I want to share with you. I think it really helps to answer this question: Is darkness the final word? Number one, think about this. I'll put these quotes on the screen here from uh, from the commentary. It says that uh, Psalm 88 is a witness to the possibility of unrelieved suffering as a believer's lot. The happy ending of most psalms of this kind is seen to be a bonus, not a due. We here's the point, my friends. What, how often do we we tend to see things as well? I deserve to be happy, or I deserve to go without suffering. I deserve to have no persecution in my life. Do you, do you feel that that is a right? See, even after you become a Christian, sometimes we feel that God owes us a happy, healthy, wealthy life. You may not go to a prosperity gospel preaching church, but sometimes we fall prey to their bad theology even though we don't attend one of those churches. We can be tempted toward that kind of theology. Jesus never said we're owed an easy life. The Bible doesn't say that you were owed an easy life. The withholding of, of that kind of a life from God's people, by the way, is no, no, no proof that God is, has displeasure toward you. 
And I guess one way of looking at this, my friends, is does it mean that God approves of you just because you're rich? Does it mean that God approves of you and is smiling toward you because you are having a happy life? No. That, that's no proof of God's approval. <laughs> right? So the opposite must be true as well. Just because you're not having an easy life, does that mean that God is disproving of you? No. Read the book of Job. Why was Job suffering? God says Job was, wasn't, wasn't suffering because of his sin. The Bible says God described Job as blameless in his sight. Job was a righteous man. Job was blessed of God. So, unrelieved suffering just might be our lot. It is for many believers around the world. Another thought here to consider is number two. Look at number two here. The psalm forbids us to accept the present order as final. Psalm 88 isn't final. So in spite of the kinds of suffering that are described here in this psalm, the Bible teaches there is a, a certain moral order in the universe. And therefore we, we are actually looking forward to a balance of all the evil and, and the stuff in this universe. The good news is we, we have the end of the Bible, right? We know what's going to happen in the future. This present evil world, it one day will cease to exist. God will make all things new. This world at the moment is not the end. So Psalm 88 is a sharp reminder of what Romans 8 says that we actually wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And Romans 8 reminds us that at the moment, creation is groaning. It knows there's something better to come. <laughs> Even creation knows this is not its best life now. <laughs> right? And hopefully believers know that as well. Are you waiting for that adoption? Are you waiting for the redemption of your body? And so if you are suffering like the psalmist, you can look forward to a new body. A, a, a third thought is this. This author, like Job, does not give up. He completes his prayer still in the dark and totally unrewarded. The taunt, does Job fear God for nothing, is answered yet again. That's a quote from the, uh, the book of Job. I encourage you to read the book of Job and kind of, kind of put it in the, maybe in context of Psalm 88 here. And so it's interesting if you compare the psalmist here to Job. The authors received no satisfactory answer for why his life has turned out to be so miserable. If you read the book of Job, Job asks God... I remember, uh, I forget, I, I counted them up. Read the whole book of Job. It's either 17 or 19 times. Job says, why God? Why God? Why, why, why are you doing this? Why did you do this? Why did you take my children? Why have you taken me from a wealthy man to a poor man? And why, why are you allowing your wife to attack me? And why am I sitting here in pain? 
why, why, why? And you get to the end of the book, and God never answers his why question. So like Job, he, he's, he's asking why. But it's interesting that Job, at one point, does not curse God. <laughs> that is the correct response, by the way. He doesn't curse God. But what does he do? He clings to God. He prays. The psalmist here doesn't do that either. And even to the end, we don't see anything here in this psalm where he's cursing God, do we? He's not running away from God. He's, he continues to look to God. That's the proper response. Here, here's a fourth thing to think of. The author's name allows us with hindsight to see that his rejection was only apparent. His existence was no mistake. There was a divine plan bigger than he knew and a place in it reserved most carefully for him. Oh, here's, here's where, good again, good theology is so helpful. God is always great and God is always good. Probably to his surprise, this painful psalm of lament is included along with the other psalms in your Bible. You, you get a you get a vast array of emotions going on in the Psalter, and that's helpful. Sometimes we're on highs, sometimes we're on lows, sometimes we're in between somewhere, we're up and down. But how do you respond when you're in the low? Psalms like this are helpful. As we think about this, I couldn't help but think of Jesus Christ. I want you to think of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is helpful because we need to understand that there is somebody who knows our griefs, who knows our sorrows, who knows what affliction is. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's been here. He's done it. Look what Isaiah 53, this, this prophecy some 700 years before Jesus came to earth. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we live in a fallen world at the moment. We live in sin-cursed bodies. And the good news is there is the great, the good shepherd, the servant king who came and bore your affliction, bore your grief, bore your sorrows, he is acquainted with all of our griefs. <laughs> and Hebrews says he understands our weaknesses and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he continues to be our great high priest, ministering on our behalf. So if you feel like you're in the dark night of your soul, it's not the end. 
there's one there with you. He's there with you. And he has dealt with your worst problem. So there is hope yet to come. And so, my friends, no Christian is immune from times of major discouragement. Here's where reading biographies and autobiographies are helpful. Reading the scriptures, we see the saints, they went through times of dark nights of the soul too. Many pastors and missionaries and Christians throughout church history have gone through dark nights of the soul. And so in spite of many high times on a mountaintop, there's also low seasons where we're, we're in the valley. And it's interesting, this is often true for many Christians. And I'm reminded of John Bunyan, who was in prison for 12 years, separated from his family, all because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. And there was even times the prison guard would leave the door open, and he said, you can walk out, Mr. Bunyan, just don't preach the gospel. And of course, Mr. Bunyan, who was a pastor, a good pastor, couldn't do that. So he was in prison for 12 years. And that was very hard for him, especially when he would see his daughter through the prison bars, see his family. That was very difficult for him. But you know what? God used that dark night of his soul. And uh, there's a book that he wrote that's been helpful to Christians all over the world for many years. The Pilgrim's Progress has been extremely helpful. And it's interesting, if you read the Pilgrim's Progress, there's a moment when Christian, as he's on his way to the celestial city, had to go through the valley of humiliation. He un- Bunyan understood this. On the way to the celestial city, we all have to go through the valley of humiliation. It is difficult. It's hard. But it's helpful. I encourage you to read that part. Of course, he made it out. And of course, Christian eventually makes it to the celestial city. But this is true of every Christian. This particular lament song reveals just how discouraged a true believer can become. See, just because you're discouraged doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. Even believers can be discouraged. So in the midst of adversity, God's people often have to persevere with unshakable faith. And of course, the object of that faith is crucial. It has to be in God. And this psalm has a reality to it that really makes it relevant for me. It's been very relevant for me. I hope it's relevant to you. I want to serve you well, because if you haven't gone through the dark night of your soul yet, you very likely will in the future. And it's hard. It's difficult. But you're not alone. Many have gone there and been there before you. And as you go through it, you're not alone, because Jesus says he's always there with you. And so the reality here is helpful, and it makes it relevant. It's it's in such difficult times that true believers can turn to the Lord for strength, just as this psalmist does. He's crying out to Yahweh, and it's encouraging. What an encouragement to know that God's grace is always sufficient, and we can find God to be more than enough for us. Let me just give you an example of somebody who suffered deeply throughout his entire life. I encourage you to go back and read about the hymnist uh, by the name of William Cowper, Some call his name Cooper, but it looks like Cowper. He was born in England, 
He wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, written back in 1773. The poem, by the way, was the last hymn text that Cowper wrote, and it was written after one of his several suicide attempts. Uh, William Cowper was a true believer in Christ, but nevertheless, he was, he was often so much in despair, he, he, had, he attempted suicide. Uh, apparently, this one, he tried to drown himself. He was not successful. And his pastor, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, often tried to encourage him, and they wrote a hymn book together. So God used his deep night of the soul to write some very helpful poems and hymns. This one became a hymn. Let me just read to you this poem. I'll put it on a screen that God moves in a mysterious way. Here's what, here's what he wrote. Remember, this was written just before he attempted suicide. And he says that God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And if you want to sing this, you can sing it like this. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the cloud ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. As far as I know, God never made it plain to him in this life. But after he died, I'm sure God did. It may never, in this life, it may not be plain to you, but do you trust in a good God that will make it plain to you one day? God knows. God has the answers. And there's a purpose in everything that happens in our lives. So may God enable you and me to believe that God is always good. So that we would live this life being His lights, being, being this salt who we are that would bring Him honor and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for giving us this very sad psalm. As we go through life, may we believe that affliction and persecution and trials and suffering are, are from you and they're good things, they are from your hand and you have purpose in what you do. 
May we not believe in just blind unbelief, as William Cowper says, or just random chance, or or uh, just uh, uh, just luck, or that sort of thing. But may we see you as a, an all wise, great, good God who does reign supreme over all of His creation. And may we continue to trust in you, no matter what happens. May we not curse you uh, for what happens, but may our lives bring you honor and glory, even in our suffering. May we still look to you, may we still trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.